With this great example before me, with the sense and spirit, the faith and honor, the duty and interest of the same American people pledged to support the Constitution of the United States, I entertain no doubt of its continuance in all its energy, and my mind is prepared without hesitation to lay myself under the most solemn obligations to support it to the utmost of my power. John Adams, March 4th, 1797. Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Welcome back, everyone. Equally forceful and reserved, a brilliant legal mind and a terrible politician. His presidency and its impact is largely glossed over in the history books, the HBO docuseries notwithstanding. This week, we're talking about John Adams, specifically his one-term presidency. While much attention is paid to his predecessor, the man who started it all, and his successor, one of my least favorite men, Adams stands out as one of the most complicated and interesting stories surrounding the founding of the new nation. So, grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. John Adams was born in Braintree, Massachusetts, on October 30, 1735. To the general public, he is known probably for a few things. Being a huge proponent of America's call for independence, his marriage to Abigail, and being the second president of the United States. But there is a bit more to the man beyond the Cliff Notes version. Adams was the oldest of three sons, born on his family's farm to his mother Susanna and his deacon father, John Sr. As the eldest, Adams had the opportunity to gain an education and trained as a lawyer before becoming president. His training as a lawyer led him right into the fray of the escalating tensions between the colonies and the crown, where he defended the British officers involved in the infamous Boston Massacre. As I've covered before in the episode titled The Rebel Rousers, Adams initially didn't seek full separation. But as tensions and grievances grew, so too did his desire to break all ties and become independent and free. Adams made a name for himself as a revolutionary, arguing passionately for the rebel cause, penning many a pamphlet making the legal case why the colonies should separate, he was on hand during the Continental Congress and infamously worked with Jefferson on drafting the Declaration of Independence. But his contributions did not end there. Prior to becoming president, Adams served as envoy to France, serving alongside Benjamin Franklin in an effort to secure trade agreements with France and worked alongside fellow American commissioners in securing the Treaty of Paris, the official end to the revolution. His diplomatic career includes posts as minister to both the Netherlands and Great Britain. And of course, he holds the distinction of serving as our first vice president, a position which seemed very much against his actionable nature. Adams himself was honest about his feelings of his time as vice president, writing, quote, My country has, in its wisdom, contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived, end quote. 
Adams was fiercely dedicated to his country and worked diligently to make it as strong and respected as humanly possible. His time as vice president required him to do the one thing he was innately unqualified for, being quiet. When Washington announced his retirement in 1796, Adams assumed he was the natural choice to be the next president. In correspondence with his wife, Abigail, John mentioned he felt comfortable playing second only to the great general himself. Adams and Washington were different in almost every aspect. Washington was a tall, lean, commanding presence with a long and decorated military career. Adams was short and stocky, more brains than brawn. And whereas Washington was always inflicted with self-doubt and was unsure he should accept the role of president, Adams was convinced he was the perfect man for the job due to his dedicated service in establishing the country to begin with. As I discussed in a prior episode, the election of 1796 was the first where two separate factions vied for the office. While Aaron Burr was the only candidate who actively campaigned, supporters of Adams and Jefferson lobbied in the background for their candidate to get the seat. Throw in Hamilton's dedication to Thomas Pickney, and the result was a president and vice president serving from two differing political ideologies and parties. Initially, Adams tried to bring his vice president, Thomas Jefferson, into the mix. Adams and Jefferson had a long-established friendship and had collaborated a number of times over the years. In an effort at bipartisanship, Adams offered Jefferson the opportunity to travel to France to act as a representative for America in easing tensions with the country. As Jefferson was the next in line to the presidency, they decided this was perhaps not the greatest idea in case anything should happen to Adams. This appears to be the end of the camaraderie for the two gentlemen, as Jefferson would spend the remainder of his time in the administration actively undercutting Adams and fighting against many of his policies. Given his experience, Adams initially focused his presidency on foreign policy and relegated domestic affairs to Congress. He also decided to keep the previous administration's cabinet intact. While it was a terrible decision in hindsight, his reasoning could be understood in the moment. For one, all of the members of the cabinet were Federalists. As far as Adams was concerned, this meant they were all playing for the same political team and had the same political ends. Another factor at play was the difficulty in convincing people to serve in the administration to begin with. Pay was meager and Washington struggled during his second term to fill the vacancies. Adams likely wanted to avoid a protracted search effort to fill the posts, especially considering the team was already in place and had experience. Unfortunately for Adams, a majority of the cabinet was firmly behind Alexander Hamilton and used their posts to lobby Hamilton's positions during meetings. He was truly a man with an overflated sense of ego. Enjoying immense influence during Washington's administration, Hamilton initially reached out to Adams to provide some advice, unwarranted, mind you, about how to serve in his role. Adams, with two decades of life experience over Hamilton, was understandably irritated. Now, of course, this is the same Hamilton who decided he preferred Pickney over Adams and attempted to undermine his election by manipulating people's votes. If I had the ability to go back in time, this is definitely one of the situations where I try to determine why Alexander Hamilton felt his opinion was so much better than everyone else's. Alas, I digress. 
As I mentioned, Adams came on board during escalated tensions with the French, who were angered at what they perceived to be a breach of contract by the United States for failing to live up to their promise under the Treaty of Alliance signed in 1778. This treaty provided French support of the American cause for independence in exchange for America's promise to protect French colonies in the Caribbean. When France engaged in hostilities against the British, they assumed America would come to their aid and protect the colonies from invasion. Unfortunately for the French, Washington announced a stance of neutrality. This was compounded by the signing of the Jay Treaty, which allowed America to stay out of the war between the two countries, resolve some of the remaining issues from the revolution, and increase their trade relationship with Great Britain. To retaliate, the French began capturing American merchant ships off the Atlantic coast and along the Caribbean. A newly formed country without a navy, the United States found themselves unable to do much other than explore a diplomatic solution. And diplomacy is what Adams strived for, which led to the infamous XYZ affair. Adams hoped to send a diplomatic corps of men to negotiate a peaceful solution with the French. The French refused to see the American envoy or negotiate until the wheels were greased a bit. No meetings or negotiations would begin unless the French Foreign Minister Talleyrand received $250,000 and a loan for $10 million was approved. It was either put up or shut up. The Americans refused to pay the bribe and reported the situation back to Adams. Irritated but still committed to peace, Adams addressed Congress in March of 1798 and reported the diplomatic mission was unsuccessful but spared the details of the demand for bribes. Adams feared, had he disclosed how disrespectful the French treated the envoy, the cries for war would be too loud to ignore. Still hoping to find a peaceful solution, but wanting to prepare for all possible outcomes, Adams requested funding to raise an army and naval defense. In the heightened partisan environment, the Democratic-Republican faction of Congress responded to Adams's speech by claiming he was calling for war, which he wasn't, and accused him of withholding vital information which he kind of was, but not for the reasons they suspected. They demanded he make the correspondence surrounding the affair public, thinking the full facts would show France in a better light. On April 2nd, Republican Albert Gallatin of Pennsylvania proposed a resolution calling for the president to disclose the dispatches. The House voted 65 to 27 in favor. Adams acquiesced, redacting the French participants and replacing their names with X, Y, and Z. Once the truth was out, the public support of the French plummeted, and a pro-war sentiment settled over the nation. In the fur over the French slight, Congress approved funding for arming merchant ships and authorized one million in funding to help fortify harbors and cannon foundries. Adams' popularity soared, and letters poured in every day, many of which he strived to answer. Attempting to blunt the support of Adams and calls for war, Jefferson's Democratic Republicans started claiming the entire issue was a farce aimed to increase the executive power and, quote, bind us by the treble chain of fiscal, legal, and military despotism, end quote. I guess it was our country's first version of the screams of fake news. Despite all the charges to the contrary, Adams remained focused on avoiding war with France at all costs. While the Federalists were itching to engage in a conflict, Adams remained committed to diplomacy and was not in support of creating a standing army. Instead, he wanted to put mechanisms in place to provide defense of the country in case of an attack, and his proudest achievement was his rebuilding of the naval fleet and creation of the Department of Navy. 
With extreme highs come extreme lows, and unfortunately, Adams would sign legislation that would forever be a stain on his administration, the Alien and Sedition Acts. Partisanship was at an all-time high throughout the tensions with France, with the Democratic Republicans fervently in support of the French and the Federalists supportive of the British. This played out in the press with papers printing hard rebukes to Adams and his presidency and increased concern amongst the Federalist wing of Congress that foreign governments were trying to undermine the American government. To combat this fear, Federalists proposed four pieces of legislation which together became known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. Their argument was the laws provided for greater national security against foreign threats, but opponents claimed they were only aimed at suppressing opposing voters and was a violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution. The first of the four was the Naturalization Act, which made it more difficult for an immigrant to become a citizen, extending residency requirements from 5 to 14 years. The Alien Act, the only one of the four pieces of legislation to have bipartisan support, allowed for the detention of enemy aliens in a time of war without trial or counsel. The Alien Enemies Act allowed the president to deport aliens whom he determined dangerous to the nation's security. And finally, the Sedition Act outlawed conspiracy to prevent enforcement of federal laws and punished anything classified as subversive speech with fines and jail time. Whatever popularity Adams enjoyed during his handling of the XYZ affair quickly dissipated when he signed the bills into law. The acts were unpopular throughout the country and were criticized by several state legislatures. While no one was deported under his administration, the laws were used to indict nearly 20 people in just under 18 months, almost all of whom were Jefferson Party loyalists who ran newspapers critical of the president and his administration. For his part, Adams did pardon those convicted. And to share an interesting fact about these laws, while the Sedition and Alien Act expired by 1801, the Alien Enemies Act remains on the books to this day and was used to force the deportation of non-citizens from Germany, Japan, and Italy after the end of World War II. Thomas Jefferson, Adams' vice president, opposed the laws and believed them to be unconstitutional. Partnering with James Madison, both men wrote secret resolutions for Kentucky and Virginia where they claimed states could nullify any federal law with which they believed to be unconstitutional. States' rights were officially born in what history nerds refer to as the Principles of 98. In arguing for nullification of federal law, Jefferson and Madison argued the Constitution was based on an agreement amongst the states, and it was ultimately the people, exercising their voice through their legislature, who decided the legitimacy of federal laws. The Alien and Sedition Acts proved to be the rallying cry for the Democratic Republicans who took full advantage and secured victory when Thomas Jefferson was elected. Well, eventually. But that's a different story for when I get to discussing good old Jefferson. Adams served only one term as president, and with his defeat, the country faced a major test of its democracy. A peaceful transfer of power between two different political factions. While Washington had done it in 1796, this was the first time that one party had to acquiesce power to another. And while Adams did not attend Jefferson's inauguration, he took his leave peacefully and without protest. And while many armchair historians might know Adams' presidency for things like the Alien and Sedition Acts and the XYZ Affair, he was in office and oversaw a few other items of note such as the passage of the 11th Amendment to the Constitution, 
The 11th Amendment states federal courts do not have the jurisdiction over litigation between individuals from separate states. And on April 7, 1798, the Mississippi Territory was acquired, and President Adams appointed the first governor of the territory, and he is the first president to take up residence in the presidential mansion we call the White House. And his work in diplomacy also proved successful. He was able to negotiate the end of the quasi-war with France on September 30th with the Treaty of Mortefontaine. I'm not French, and I'm pretty sure I mortified that. I do apologize. One could argue Adams had one of the hardest acts in American political history to follow by succeeding George Washington. And while he may have lacked the unifying presence of Washington or the devout loyalty commanded by Jefferson, he proved to be a solid choice to take up the mantle. Fiery and revolutionary in his youth, Adams demonstrated as president to be even-handed and committed to the success of the Constitution and the country. If you've been enjoying the show, I do hope you consider dropping a rate and review on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I love hearing from you. And if you want to contribute to the book and coffee supply, please consider making a donation on Buy Me a Coffee. You can find out more about supporting the show or making your own request for an episode topic through the website at www.civicsandcoffee.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Thank you.